you remain standing, we're going to read some scripture. This is from Acts chapter 1 and uh, the first five verses, so uh, you can follow along on the screen. And uh, I'll read what Dr. Luke wrote from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We'll uh, look into another portion of God's Word in just a little bit. So let's let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the privilege to uh, be here together on a sunny Sunday morning uh, to encourage one another and to worship you. Lord, thank you that in uh, times of trouble and difficulty that uh, you want us to turn to you. And Lord, this morning we uh, thank you and praise you for the gift of new life. And Lord, we ask now that you would uh, open up our eyes and ears and minds to your word. Lord, may our lives be transformed because we've been here today, and we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, probably uh, the most asked question that a pastor gets sometimes when they get out of their realm of uh, away from their church and maybe at a conference or something, uh, the question uh, that's most asked is, how big is your church? And when somebody asks that, are like, are they talking like square footage? Are they talking mostly talking about people? So, uh, one pastor uh, was asked, like, well, how many uh, does your auditorium seat? And he said, I don't know how many it seats, but it's, but it sleeps 150. Um, so let's hope that's not the case this morning. And uh, as we get into to God's word, we've been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and uh, thinking about what happened after the resurrection. And Jesus could have ascended straight to heaven after he rose that morning on that Sunday morning, but he chose not to. And the scriptures tell us, and as we just read in Acts chapter 1, what happened for six weeks, Dr. Luke writes in Acts 1-3, for 40 days... He made many appearances, many infallible proofs. How do you prove to somebody that you've come back from the dead? Well, you make a personal appearance. And Jesus made about 10 of them. He did it for 40 days. Now, 40 is a significant number in the Bible, isn't it? Uh, Think back to the flood. It rained, what, 40 days and 40 nights. Think about Joshua uh, sending the spies into Canaan. And how long were they there for 40 days? And then the wilderness wanderings were for 40 days. Remember, Goliath came out in 1 Samuel and he was challenging the Israelites in this one-on-one battle. He did it for 40 days. Jesus was in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 before he started his ministry for what? For 40 days. So 40 is a significant number. It's a number of testing. And so Jesus, for 40 days, made post-resurrection appearances. And we've looked at four of them so far. Uh, so Sunday morning, Resurrection Day, to Mary Magdalene. I remember Mary thought he was the gardener. She was confused, as all of us would have been that morning. A Sunday afternoon to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, about 
seven or eight miles from Jerusalem, and they're walking back from the day's events, and Jesus appears, and Jesus gives them a Bible study from the Old Testament. He has dinner with them, and then their eyes are open. They originally didn't realize who this was, and then their eyes were open, and it was Jesus, and then he was gone. And that night, Sunday night then, he appeared to the apostles. They were in the upper room with the doors locked because they were afraid that uh, our leader's been executed, and they're probably coming for us. And in the midst of that, Jesus appears and and shows the disciples that he's alive and speaks words of blessing on them. Last week, we looked at a fourth post-resurrection appearance. And this was eight days later when he appeared to the disciples again. This time, Thomas was with them. Remember, if you know the story, he wasn't with them the first time. And Jesus made this appearance almost specifically for Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe he's alive until what? I take my finger and put it in the hole in his, in his hands and in the hole in his side. And Jesus appears to the disciples and he goes to Thomas and shows him. And Thomas gives this affirmation of faith, my Lord and my God. Well, that brings us to another post-resurrection appearance of uh, the Lord. And we're going to look at it in John 21. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, uh, John 21, we're going to look at the first 14 verses and look at a fifth post-resurrection appearance. This one uh, more toward the latter period of the 40 days in which he made his post-resurrection appearances. So let's look at the setting. The setting, and it's found in uh, John 21, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So the first two appearances to the disciples were where? In Jerusalem, in that upper room. Now this is a time period later, and what have the disciples done? They've gone back to their homeland. They've gone back to what's familiar with them and to them, and that's what? The Sea of Galilee. That's where most of Jesus' ministry took place. So now they're up north, away from Jerusalem. And we have a a little bit of a roll call here. Uh, John writes, it happened this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, also known as Didymus, we said last week that means twin. Thomas was a twin, so Peter was there. Thomas was there. Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee. The sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. Who else was there? And two other disciples were together. So seven of the 12 disciples, Judas has committed suicide, Judas Iscariot is gone. Seven of the 11 remaining ones are there uh, near the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Let's look at the text, verse 3. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So what's happening? they're, They're going to the Sea of Galilee and they're fishing. Sea of Galilee is not a very big lake or sea. Five miles wide, eight miles from north to south. And they're out there fishing. Why are they fishing? Well, they're in limbo a little bit. Uh, Fishing was something that was familiar to them. Uh, At least four or five of them were professional fishermen. Perhaps the disciples are feeling like failures. They all bailed on Jesus uh, at his most crucial moment. And so maybe they're like, you know what? Uh, We're just going to go back to what we kind of know, what we feel like we're comfortable with. Uh, maybe they just wanted to, to spend a night fishing. We don't, we don't know, but 
they're fishing. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other six say, we're going with you. Now look what happened. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. <laughs> they, there's seven of them. They're fishing all night long in the Sea of Galilee. And after their all night long fishing, throwing their nets over and over again into the Sea of Galilee, they come up with zero fish. Perhaps they're feeling like even more of a failure because like I mentioned, uh, at least four of them were professional fishermen. So they're probably not feeling the greatest. They've been up all night. They've caught nothing. And when that happens, um, the last thing you want to be asked by somebody is, how'd you do in your fishing trip? And we're going to see that's what happens. So let's look at uh, the suggestion and the sizable catch, verse 4. Now, John gives us some important detail information here to the story. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. So what happens? Jesus appears again. Jesus is standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We learn from later in the text that the disciples are about a 100 yards out into the Sea of Galilee. And now Jesus shows up, but they don't know it is him. Verse 5, he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? How how many did you catch? He must have had to yell it because they were out quite a ways. And so he calls out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? The New King James Version uses the word children, have you any food? The New Living Translation, fellows, have you caught any fish? It's uh, really the literal Greek word there is paidon, which means children. Hey, have you caught anything? And so the disciples maybe sheepishly answer, no. So now we read about the suggestion, and Jesus makes a suggestion. Now remember in the storyline that at this point, they don't know it's Jesus. They don't know who they're talking to. They can't, they, they don't know that this is Jesus on the shore. So, This suggestion, as far as the disciples are concerned, comes from just some man on the beach. Notice what his suggestion is. Verse 6, he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So Jesus, unbeknownst to them because they don't know it's him yet, says, take your nets, now go to the right side and you'll find some fish. Now, this is a key moment in the story because the disciples could have said, and maybe they were a little tired and cranky from being up all night and not catching anything. They could have said, you know what? We've thrown this net out dozens and dozens of times. We're done. Or who does this fellow think he is to give uh, advice to uh, you know, professional fishermen? But maybe they thought, There's nothing, what, what is there to lose? So they, they obey, take, take the, the, the cue to throw their nets on the other side of the boat, and it says, when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Wow. <laughs> All night long, nothing. Jesus says, throw it on the other side of the boat, 
And now they can't even bring the net in because it's so full of fish. Later on, John tells us there were 153 large fish. That's coming from a fisherman, you know. Large, large fish, you know. How, how big were they? 153. And, and so, uh, now they're, they're having trouble getting the, the, the net and the fish in. And then it says, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, it's how he refers to himself, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So here's where the story changes again. Now John recognizes this is Jesus. Now how did he recognize him? Uh, we don't know. This is again speculation. They were about a hundred yards away. Um, I walked off earlier this morning from the, the back of the wall here to the end of the fellowship hall with the doors there, and that's about uh, 70 yards. A uh, hundred yards of football field. How did John know it was Jesus? Well, maybe because this is early in the morning, maybe there's more light. Maybe he recognized his voice. But maybe, and here's what I think, John knows who else could do this but Jesus. And if you know your New Testament, uh, you go back to when Jesus called his disciples. In Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, a very uh, almost parallel story when he's first calling the, the disciples. It says, when Jesus had finished speaking... He said to Simon Peter, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, this is Luke chapter 5, verse 6, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they've kind of had this experience before where Jesus uh, miraculously provides fish for them. And I think John's thinking, this has to be Jesus. And so when John says, it's the Lord, uh, what does Peter do? As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. And then Peter starts swimming towards the shore. The other disciples follow in the boat, towing the net. They were about 100 yards from the shore. And then it says, when they landed... They saw a fire burning coals with fish on it and, and some bread. So this leads us to the special invitation. So now they're back on shore. They, they're, they realize it's Jesus. And what's Jesus doing? He's on shore and he already has a charcoal fire going. And he's cooking breakfast. Now it's interesting that the word for the fire here, the, the burning coals is only used one other time in the New Testament. And that other time in the New Testament that it was used is John chapter 18 when Peter was standing around a fire and they're saying, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And what did Peter do? He denied him three times. And so I, I wonder what Peter's thinking. Isn't it interesting how sometimes smells can can like um, bring back a, a memory? My um, My great... Grandfather in his last years lived with uh, my grandparents on my dad's side and up upstairs of their their house, and my great grandfather we used to call him Gramps uh, smoked smoked a pipe and I remember as a kid going in there and, and uh, it, it kind of pervaded the house but 
to tell you the truth, it was some sort of cherry tobacco, and it smelled really, really good. And to this day, if I get that smell, I remember my great-grandfather. And here's Peter, and he's just a few weeks earlier, he's been around a charcoal fire, and he's denied that he's even known Jesus, and now he's back in that very similar setting. And when you read the text here, as we just read, they saw fire burning coals with fish on it and some bread. So Jesus is already cooking breakfast. I wonder in my mind, just as this plays out, did he catch those fish, Jesus? Or do you think he just said, snapped his fingers or spoke and said, fish and bread, please, and there it appeared. I don't know. He could have done either one. I'm sure it was cooked to perfection, right? Jesus is, is cooking, cooking breakfast. But notice what he says in verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, here's the invitation, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. That's quite an offer, isn't it? How do you turn down an offer from Jesus to have breakfast? I don't know if you've ever had an invitation to to meet somebody for a breakfast or a lunch or whatever that that kind of was a special invitation. Um, I can remember a couple times in our lives uh, where we got invited to uh, a special breakfast, and um, one of them was probably almost 40 years ago. I was a young pastor. We were vacationing at Maranatha Bible and Missionary Conference, and we had some of our friends from the church we were attending that was with us there for the week, and one of the, the pastors, the preachers for that week, was a, a pastor by the name of Newt Larson, and he's someone that um, I had listened to his sermons, was aware of his ministry. He pastored a large church in Akron, Ohio, called the Chapel. And um, and so I uh, very much um, admired uh, and looked up to, to Newt Larson. Uh, Newt's a retired pastor today, lives on uh, on the other side of the state in Sawyer, Michigan, and has a ministry of mentoring other pastors. Newt's probably in his um, 80s. But he's the speaker that day and that week, and his wife Janine was not able to come along with him. So on one of the sessions, I think it was like on the Tuesday session, Newt goes, all right, if there are any pastors here, he says, I- I- I'm always interested in meeting with pastors. He says, I want you to come down to where he was staying, and they put the speaker up in um, some very nice condominiums, and I've been in the Overlook Lake, Michigan, and it's a beautiful view and a beautiful setting. He says, come down to my condominium at 7.30 in the morning tomorrow, and we'll have breakfast together. I'm thinking, all right, I'm, 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 I'm going to be there. In fact, uh, there was about seven or eight of pastors that showed up. The friend that came with us, um, he so badly wanted to go, he wasn't a pastor, he was kind of the song leader at our at the church that that we were at, and he like, I'm coming too, <laughs> and so he kind of snuck in, and then we went around and talked about you know what church we were from, and he was a little embarrassed because like, well, I'm not really the pastor, but uh, Newt was was gracious with that. I remember uh, this is probably twenty twenty years ago or so. Uh, my younger brother and his uh, family attend a church in Medina, Ohio, which is between Cleveland and, and Akron. 
and they had a, a men's outreach, uh, and it was a breakfast, and um, we happened to, to be in the area and attended, and the speaker was the head football coach of the Cleveland Browns, but his name was Sam Ritigliano. I think at that point he had re- retired, uh, as I recall. And so there was a lot of guys that showed up, and we're having breakfast in this big uh, fellowship hall, and uh, I've got my tray, and I see uh, Sam Ritigliano had just sat down, the head coach of the Browns, and there's like some empty places around him. And so like, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> Right across from Sam Ritigliano and, and our other family got, uh, got to sit around and we had the chance to like have breakfast with the head football coach, former coach of the Cleveland Browns. And if you're a sports fan, that's, that's kind of a big deal. Well, uh, all that pales to what's happening here. Let's, Jesus says, come have breakfast with me. And and then the text just closes um, in verses 12 and 13. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They, they knew at this point. This, they, they knew this was Jesus. They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. So they have breakfast on the shores of Sea of Galilee. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And of course, we know that the rest of this passage, which we'll probably look at next week, is a significant passage where now Jesus hones in on Peter, doesn't he? Because what's Peter? Peter's denied Jesus three times. Peter's feeling like a failure. And Jesus restores him in a, in a beautiful passage that we'll, we'll look at next, uh, next Sunday. But that's, that's the story of the third post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples. And so this morning, just in the last 15 minutes or so, let's look at some life lessons from John 21. What, what are some things that we can learn from, from this passage that might help us in our um, daily life? And here's the first life lesson I want us to think about, is that Jesus is aware of every circumstance in our life. Jesus is aware of every circumstance in our lives. Well, in John 21, what did he know about the disciples? Well, he knew where the disciples were. How did he know? Because Jesus knows everything. So he knows that they're out fishing, so that's why he shows up at the Sea of Galilee. What else did he know? No. He knew that they didn't catch any fish. <laughs> he asked this question for a reason. He knew that they had fished all night and hadn't caught anything. What else did Jesus know? He knew exactly where that large school of fish were. And so he says, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And he knew there was 153 fish there that they would, would catch. A little later on in the, in the passage, and uh, something we'll look at next week, what else did he know? He knew something uh, in the future about Peter. And he tells Peter what that he's going to be crucified someday. And uh, church tradition tells us that that's what's happened, that Peter ended up um, being a martyr, and he was crucified, and church tradition and church history tells us that he didn't want to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus, so he asked that the cross be put upside down because he did not feel worthy of being crucified in the same manner that Jesus was. So Jesus is aware of every circumstance in our life. 
what does he know? Psalm 139 talks about the fact that Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. Psalm 139 says that uh, Jesus knows when we sit down and when we rise up. He knows our thoughts. You perceive my thoughts from afar off. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Jesus knows when we stand up, sit down. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're going to say before we even say it. Jesus knows everything about us. And that's especially significant when we go through challenges and hard times in our life, which we all have and we all will, because when we go through the really, really hard times, we begin to think, does Jesus really know what's going on in my life? Does he, does, is he really aware of the circumstances of my life and the trials that I'm facing, and does he really care? And the answer is, is yes. He's aware of every circumstance in our life. Hebrews 4.13. Everything, uh, let me start with uh, the beginning of the verse. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him. So Jesus sees and knows everything. Uh, when John wrote uh, the book of Revelation, seven letters to seven churches, in every letter to the seven churches, what is he, it starts out and says, I know. And then he writes about what he knows about that particular church. God knows everything. Matthew 10 tells us he knows the, the number of hairs that are on our head. He knows when the sparrow uh, falls to the ground. Jesus knows everything. And so here's Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 27, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Why are you saying God doesn't know what's happening? Don't you know, haven't you heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creators of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And so um, whatever you're facing this morning, whatever challenges, whatever's on your plate, be aware that Jesus knows. And at some point in time, Jesus will, will act like he did for the disciples. won't be in your timing probably, but it'll be in his timing. Jesus is aware of every circumstance in our life. Second one is this. Blessing in our lives flows out of obedience. Blessing in our lives flows out of obedience. And so uh, this story would have had a whole different conclusion if they wouldn't have, what, obeyed to throw their nets on the other side of the, the boat. And when they did, what did they experience? An abundance of blessing. And that's the consistent message through uh, through all of Scripture that blessing what follows obedience in our life. Joshua, before he leads the Israelites into the, the promised land, here's the words to Joshua, be strong and courageous, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you to do. Do not turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful in whatever you do. Um, Follow the law, meditate on it, then you will be prosperous and successful. 
James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 says, don't just be hearers of the word, you'll deceive yourself, but what? Put it into practice. And then what's the promise? The promise is God's blessing. Oftentimes in our life, um, obedience comes out of difficulty in our lives. I like Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist writes, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey the Lord. And sometimes the Lord has to allow difficulty and pain in our lives. Why? To get our attention so that we'll look up to him and to his word and follow the right path. You see, if the disciples would have had a very successful night fishing, they, they probably wouldn't have listened to, to the instruction and they would have missed the greater blessing. But it was out of their what? Out of their failure? Out of their disappointment? That they were ready to listen and ready to obey. And uh, the same is true in, in our lives. Uh, life lesson number three is this, that God is our provider. God is our provider. Uh, he provided for the disciples, didn't he? And you might think, well, how do, how do disciples kind of make a living? And how, how, how do they, you know, make ends meet? Well, um, 153 fish were gonna, gonna bring them a, a pretty good return. And, and Jesus provided for them. And what we need to understand and learn is that Jesus is our provider. Now, when we think about that, the first time, first thing we think about usually is material things. And that's true as well. But, um, number one, he's provided for us spiritually, hasn't he? He's provided a way to, to heaven. He's provided a savior. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. So the, if, if Jesus has blessed us with nothing else in life but salvation, we need to be what? Eternally grateful that our sins have been paid for by Christ's death on the cross and we have the, the assurance of a home in heaven. And so he's provided for us uh, spiritually. Uh, we call that justification. Uh, he's provided for us to uh, the tools to live a godly life. We call that sanctification. Second Peter chapter one verse three. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. And, and where's that found? It's found right here. This is how to live a godly life. So he's provided what? The way that we can live our godly life and then he's provided someday our ultimate glorification. It, we're going to be with him forever. So he's provided spiritually, but he also provides materially, doesn't he? Philippians 4.19, Paul writing a thank you note from prison to some believers who've given to his need but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so the disciples were continually learning all through Jesus' three-year ministry, but even now through his post-resurrection appearances, is that what? God is our provider. God is our provider. There's a name in the Old Testament that uh, identifies God as our provider. It's connected with the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. And the name is Jehovah Jireh. 
What's that mean? It means he is the Lord who provides. And you know the story there that at the last minute, uh, God told Abraham not to, to sacrifice his son. And there was a, a ram caught in the thicket that was um, the provision for, for Abraham at that, that moment in time. And so God is our provider. The Israelites learned that, didn't they, through the wilderness wanderings? For 40 years, they, were, they weren't planting any crops. What was it? Every day, they got up and they collected something called manna. It was like a little wafer that was on the ground, and that was their food for the day. And they were to collect just enough for them and their family, and that happened for 40 years. Uh, on the day before the Sabbath, they were to collect twice as much because they weren't to, to collect on the Sabbath. But it was it was the demonstration that God said, even in the wilderness, and that's where we learn God's our provider, don't we? If you never have a need in your life, you'll you'll never learn the miraculous provisions of God. And I've seen it in in our lives time and time again. That God is our provider. What else did he do for the Israelites? Well, he provided food for them. And Deuteronomy chapter 8, um, we read in verse 3, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. Verse 4, your clothes did not wear out. Forty years, your clothes didn't wear out. Now, that's my closet, because I've got clothes from 40 years ago, and... And Diane throws them away. It's like, if you don't clean out your closet, I'm going to. Like, it still fits. It's out of style. But their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. God, God provided everything in the time of wilderness. And the Israelites learned firsthand that God was and is their provider. Well, the last life lesson, number four, is this, that God desires to have daily fellowship with us. God desires to have daily fellowship with us. What did he say to the disciples on that morning there uh, on the Sea of Galilee? Come and have breakfast with me. And so Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship with God through Jesus. And Jesus gives the disciples an invitation, I want to spend time with you. I want to have breakfast with you. I want to to have this close, intimate relationship with you. That invitation is all through the Bible. Isaiah 55 the prophet Isaiah writes, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and, you'll, and you who have no money. This is free. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. That's the invitation of God, what? To have a relationship with, with all of us. How about Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, the familiar words of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. You got, got any problems in life? You got any burdens you're carrying? Come to me, and what? I will give you rest. 
You'll, you'll find rest and peace in a relationship with me. Go to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20, part of the seven letters of the seven churches, Revelation 3.20, written to the church at Laodicea. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Now, out of this verse, a lot of people have uh, pictures, maybe not so more today, but in years gone by, of this out of this verse of Jesus standing at a door knocking. And oftentimes it's used as a kind of a salvation invitation, but this was written to Christians. This was written to a church of believers in Laodicea. And it says that Jesus is standing at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. What's the symbolism there? Jesus wants to have fellowship with us. He wants to spend time with us. He desires to have daily fellowship with us. And what's our responsibility? We need to slow down in life long enough to realize that he wants to spend time with us. What do we have to do? We have to open the door. We have to receive the invitation. We have to make time and take time to spend time with Jesus. What an amazing thought that the creator of the universe desires to have time with you and time with me. And as someone has said, God speaks to us through his word and we speak to him through prayer. That's how that fellowship and relationship um, blossoms and takes place. Well, four life lessons from John chapter 21. I'm reminded on that last point of uh, hearing the story that Dr. Joe Stoll, um, who uh, for a number of years was president of Moody Bible Institute, Cornerstone University, and um, very well-known uh, speaker, conference speaker, pastor, written a lot of books. And uh, I remember hearing Joe Stoll say that uh, at some event that he was invited to, he was up on the platform on the Dias, and uh, he found himself seated next to Billy Graham. Now, if you were at a meeting or an event, and you were sitting next to Billy Graham, um, I don't know what would go through your mind. You might be thinking, well, what, what could I say to him, or what questions would I ask? And so uh, Joe Stoll says, I thought I would ask Billy Graham, like, and this was obviously later on toward the, you know, when Billy Graham's uh, up in years. He says, Dr. Graham, can you tell me what's been like the greatest joy in your life? And here's a man that had traveled all over the world, preached all over the world, had thousands and thousands of people come to Christ through his ministry. And Billy Graham said, my most precious times have been the times that I've had fellowship with God. And those times early in the morning when it's been me and my Bible and I've had this intimate fellowship with God. That's been the most precious times of my life. It blew Joel Stoll away because he thought he would say some fantastic crusade that he had. God desires to have daily fellowship with us. So be encouraged this morning. God knows everything that's going on in our life. And sometimes uh, we just have to wait, and in his timing, he will act. Blessings in our lives flow out of obedience. Um, maybe there's an area in our life that, as we read God's word or we're aware of that, we, we need to 
to, to make a, a decision to, to be obedient to him and his word. This morning, we need to thank God that he is our provider. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. And remember that he wants to have daily fellowship with you. Let's, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we're grateful for um, your word that you give us that um, speaks to our hearts, speaks to our lives. Lord, thank you for this um, story from John chapter 21. Lord, thank you that you know every detail of our life, not only our past, but also the present, but also the future, and therefore we can trust you. Lord, help us not to be self-sufficient, but God-dependent. Help us to learn to listen to your voice through your word and help us to trust and obey. And Lord, help us to uh, thank you that um, you've provided for us another day. And we thank you for your many blessings. And Lord, remind us today that um, you want to have time with us. So help us to, to commit and perhaps recommit to uh, daily time with you as we walk and grow in our relationship with you. And we will give you the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.